Hello and welcome to our first episode of Podcast and Crew. My guest this week is Adam Hemming, who is not only a good friend of mine, but also the director of the Space Theatre, a fantastic small venue in London and the Isle of Dogs. Adam has been working as director there for almost 16 years, and in that time he's done wonderful things with the venue. This is a really fun and interesting chat. There's lots of great information in there if you're interested in becoming an artistic director or if you want to get into venue management. So let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Hemming. How are you doing, Adam? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Fine, thank you very much. Excited to be talking to you about your role as artistic director at The Space. How have you been this week? Good, uh, very hot, very pleased that Liverpool won the Premier League yesterday and very busy. We've got lots, lots of stuff happening at the moment. Brilliant, and we'll, and we'll get on to that in a minute. So for those who don't know uh, what an artistic director does, I guess to start off with, can you tell us what it is that you do? Yeah, the artistic director has ultimate responsibility for the artistic output of the venue. My actual job title is director. My role combines both the artistic director and the um, executive director. So I not only have overall responsibility for the artistic programming of the space, but also the operation of the venue with everything that that involves from from fundraising to maintenance, marketing, um, managing all of our different programs. Um, But specifically, the artistic director would be deciding what shows are performed at the venue, if they had their own production company, what shows they would produce themselves at the venue and any other artistic development programs, any artistic output from that venue would be decided upon by the artistic director. And they might do that on their own or they might do that with the help of other people. Just picking up on what you said, um, I guess one thing to talk about and how I know you originally is from the in-house productions that the space does. Can you talk us through kind of what your responsibilities are with those in-house productions? What roles you take? And Yes, we set up Space Productions as the in-house company because we wanted to stage some known plays and known stories. A lot of the work that was coming to the space at that time was more new writing or experimental work. And we wanted to find a bit of a better balance to help us encourage more local people into the venue so it was a case of really looking at where our programming was and thinking about where we wanted it to be and how we could make that change and we decided that producing our own work was uh, the best way forward and we'd recently recruited a creative producer onto the staff my background was as a theatre director so together we formed Space Productions and uh, initially those first productions that we did I was directing those and my colleague Mari was was producing those Uh, so I was in charge of the actors and the rehearsals we we selected the shows together We, we, we agreed on which shows we would do together the sort of vision of the piece and working on working with the actors the producer would then work with the other elements of the show everything from the technical sides the lighting and sound the design sides Um, sort of set costume and props and then the marketing of the show as well working out how we were going to get an audience for that show. I got to a point where I needed to take a step back from directing shows quite so much partly to do with the work I had to do 
running the venue, yeah. um, partly to do with starting a family and not having quite so much time or energy to devote to doing that. So I became more of a more of the producer and ended up bringing in different directors to work with, but still as artistic director of, of the in-house company, had a had a big say in who those directors were and what the shows were that we selected. Sure. But I think when you bring in different directors to your company, you have to show them faith and you have to show them trust. So I, I definitely wasn't micromanaging or looking over their shoulder as they were directing in the rehearsal room, but was there to support any any issues that they had. We could talk through together and and obviously when I was producing those shows kind of looking after those those other sides of, of the production. Going back to what you're saying before in the early stages of choosing those productions what process did um, you go through? Yeah there were some shows that I'd, all, I'd, I'd sort of known known of or seen before that I had really connected with me and that I thought were appropriate so uh, things like The Graduate, I had seen that in the West End um, and really enjoyed it. So I had a copy of the script and it was something that I always felt that I wanted to do at some point. We did The Master of Margarita, which again was a was a book that I had read and really, really loved. Sometimes there are just stories that stick with you or plays that stick with you. So when you're kind of just thinking about what you might like to do, quite often those are the stories that that come to the front of the mind. In more recent years, I've done an awful lot of reading. So we now have monthly play dates that we have where we bring actors into a room, sometimes with other directors as well. And we will read two or three plays in a day or an afternoon and talk about them. And then sometimes we'll get those plays up on their feet um, just to see how they feel when we're moving them around and workshopping them a bit. So that's that's been really great. It's it's a lovely way for us to keep in contact with the actors that we'd like to work with again in the future. Mm-hmm. But it really helps us to sort of road test plays and see sort of what we what we like and what we don't. And we're always looking for stuff that's socially relevant as well. So Base Productions has done a lot of revivals of shows, but we're always looking at what makes those shows relevant today, even if they if they were written 10, 20, 30 years ago or even longer. I mean we did um a couple of years ago, a new adaptation of Little Women. So yeah, there's there's some classics that we've put on as well. Brilliant, and people are always very interested in the casting process, both performers, of course, but those who aren't in the industry as well, how, how that works. So when you decide, okay, we're going to put on, let's say the graduate, now we need the cast. So can you talk us through that process? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing you have to do is is go back to the text and work out what it is you're looking for in each role. What are the key characteristics? Um, do they need to be good at comedy? Um, which is certainly the case for the graduate. Looking at how best to describe those that role to people so they know they can they can make a judgment as to whether they are suitable for that that role or not. Mm-hmm. So coming up with a good a good casting breakdown, and then advertising by whatever means, whether that's um, on Spotlight, which is a casting website. Quite recently, we've been doing some online readings and we've been advertising via Twitter. And there are a lot of a lot of actors and performers on Twitter. So that's quite a good a good source as well. Casting breakdown fits quite neatly, usually into a, a tweetable chunk of text. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then hopefully we'll have quite a few people applying for the roles that you've got. So... It's a question of narrowing down, using the criteria that you'd laid out because you can't audition everyone. There's a limit to the number of people that you can see for each role. 
So quite often we will look at things like showreels, have the actors got a showreel so we can watch them do things. Quite often that's the most useful way of getting to know what an actor is like. And yeah, and then once you've created your shortlist, you invite them in for an audition. I quite often do group auditions Mm -hmm. so that I can see how people are in a group, what their what their social skills are like. Are they are they a leader or a follower? You don't want too many leaders in, in your cast. You want some people who are going to be able to support and work with other people. How well do they connect with other people and, and work with them? That's really what I'm looking for in my group auditions. Mm-hmm. And then obviously how suitable they are for the role. And then I tend to do recalls. So wherever possible, if I've got time, I'll do a second round of auditions. So the first round, I'll try and see, I'll see as many people as I can for each role. And then in the recalls, I may bring two, maybe three people back for each role. Mm-hmm. I just find that recalls are a really good way of kind of confirming what you think about an actor in, in an audition. My final recommendation, I guess, would be to have a sounding board there with you. Have somebody else in the room that can give you their thoughts and feedback. Quite often having a discussion with somebody really helps to cement a choice or a decision that you need to make. Um, And sometimes I have actors that I know are just right for a particular role. So sometimes I will just make an offer of a role to someone if if I've worked with them before and I I know that they're good um, and they are interested in the role as well. Um, That's very important that you don't offer a role to an actor and it feels like they're doing you you a favour. You want them to be invested and engaged and and interested in, in doing that role. Yeah. I guess the the next thing is kind of the the decision when you have your kind of first choice, your second choice, and you're putting them all together and looking at what the potential cast might be. What are the factors that you, you know, that you take into account when you look at your first, second, maybe third choice and trying to work out how they all fit together? I mean, ultimately, you really want the, the best person for each role. But there are times when the margins are very, very fine. So you might be looking at how how the cast sort of um, would would gel together and, and, and what's right for the role. I guess one good example of this is when we were casting for Nicholas Nickleby and we were casting the Squeers family. And I ended up with candidates for Mrs Squeers and and Fanny Squeers and two of them were redheads and it kind of just they felt like they were in the same family just just by virtue of that so yeah occasionally there are little things like that I think that can that can help sway a decision yeah sometimes you want to try and get the right combinations of people in to see how you know see if they spark off each other and if they if they gel so that's that is a useful thing to do I think so we've talked about the in-house productions what what i'd like to talk about next is kind of what your day-to-day is obviously i know you have a whole myriad of things that you have to do but generally what would what would your day-to-day be so yeah the space we have three staff two of them are full-time so i'm my my role as director that means i can have, have overall responsibility of everything and i have a deputy director who who supports me in all of that and then a part-time center manager who looks after more of the technical side of things on an average day, open up the space. If there was anybody rehearsing in the hall or had hired the venue for something, we would make sure that they had everything that they needed um, to start their day. So they would be our, our first focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we would start with the sort of general admin of running the venue. So 
That includes things like opening the post, um, checking the answering machine, making sure that all of our bins are emptied and, and everything is kind of organized and, and ready to go. We would log onto our computers and check our emails and deal with anything that's particularly urgent or pressing. There's a lot of admin that kind of underpins the, the running of a venue and an organization. So it might be filling in reports or processing invoices and payments and things like that. And then we might be working on a project or we might be working on programming the venue. Most days involve some some form of marketing, whether that's updating our social media or updating our website or writing a, a, an e-newsletter to keep our, our mailing list up to date, um, putting up posters around the venue and flyers around the venue and making sure that our, our print materials are where they need to be. Or we might be working on a fundraising application. So we might be putting together a, a budget or a research project that we're, we're applying for funding for. So that's generally what would happen during the daytime. It would be much more sort of office work, unless we had a production going on, in which case we'd be either in the rehearsal room or we'd be sourcing props and costume. Or we might be painting some sets, those sorts of things. And then when it gets to about six o'clock in the evening, we're setting up the box office and getting ready for the show that's performing that night. So we'd be laying out the chairs, again, making sure that that company have everything that they need and that they're all um, good and ready and just preparing for our audience to arrive. And then we'd be welcoming them and, and issuing their tickets and getting them seated and then starting the show. And then at the end of the show, clearing the audience out and um, clearing up and tidying up, locking up and finally going home. <laughs> we don't tend to open until midday unless we've got somebody who's hired the space. Because we work so many evenings, we, we don't start tend to start until, until noon. But even then, largely, we don't finish till sort of nine, ten. Mm-hmm. They are quite long days. Yeah. Obviously, we're talking now in June 2020, in the middle of COVID, and the space has been closed for about... Three months now? Yeah, March, April, May, June. Yeah, three months. How has COVID changed what you're doing? And what, what have you done to, to meet those changes? Yeah, well, obviously the venue is closed. So we had um, a few more shows from our spring season. Well, the second half of our spring season, really. And we had a summer season of shows all lined up uh, to go. So we were programmed all the way up until September. And all of those shows have had to be postponed and rescheduled. Um, so some of those we've got new dates for and some of those we're just waiting to see and, and find out when we can reopen to book those back in. But we, we really wanted to continue engaging with the theatre makers that we work with and with our audience members as much as we possibly could. So we started to do some online programmes. Uh, we have a script development programme called Script Space um, and we were due to do some rehearsed readings of plays at the space. So we took those online and have now done eight online readings of, of new writing. We've got five more of those that we're, that we're going to be doing. We also, we, we trialled some workshops and ran a few of our, our workshops. We have a, a participatory theatre group at The Space. So we did three or four kind of test workshops of those. And then we, the third thing we did was to set up a Space Theatre Club. So there's a lot of online theatre out there. And we we thought it would be nice to, it's great to watch stuff online, but then you don't really get the experience of going to the bar and chatting about it all afterwards. So the Theatre Club was really trying to replace that. So we meet on Zoom on a Wednesday evening and we talk about um, the show that we watched online. And then we thought it would be nice to invite some special guests along to, from those productions to talk about them. And we ended up having 
uh, Patsy Ferran, who's an Olivier Award winning actor, join us to talk about Treasure Island. Brilliant. So that was all going really well. And then the opportunity came to apply for some funding from the Arts Council. Mm -hmm. So we put together our Locked Down Looking Up programme and we brought in the script space readings and the workshops that we were doing and the Space Theatre Club. And then we wanted to look at doing some live performances online or recorded performances online. So mm. we asked some of the companies that had been due to perform at the space, whether they could create an online version of their shows. And we've had one of those already and we've got another two coming up and we are doing a festival of duologues from playwrights that we've commissioned to write short 15 to 30 minute plays to be performed online. Yeah, so we've got four, four strands to the lockdown looking up programme um, and that's kept us all really, really busy. We have had to furlough two of our staff, so I'm kind of working from home. A couple of associate theatre companies who are also making some work have been doing um, some uh, online speed dating for uh theatre professionals um, they've set up a reading room where they read plays and then have the playwright join them over zoom and then the undisposables our other associate company are doing a scratch night an online scratch night so their their scratch nights usually called scratching the surface and their online one is called scratching the servers you mentioned uh, the the funding from the arts council what kind of uh, tips would you give to people who are just starting that process of writing arts council forms obviously a lot of it is very specific to the project but are there any kind of general tips that you can give yeah my first one would be go for it i was i was told you probably won't have much chance of getting an arts council grant and then I applied for the first the first time I applied for one I thought I'm going to give it a go um, and I got the funding on one on my first try and then I got my next two and I was like well this is this is much easier than I thought <laughs> they haven't all come in since then I've had my fair share of, of rejections but yeah the first tip is to have a go and, and see and just see what happens because you, you you may well be surprised my second tip would be try and find someone who's done it before who can help help you through the process and help to read your application once you've written it and give you some feedback and guidance. It's always useful to have a second pair of eyes on any funding application, whether it's the Arts Council or not. You may think that you're explaining something clearly, you know the project in your head, but sometimes translating that to paper can be quite tricky. So another, another person who doesn't know your project, getting them to read it and check that it makes sense and is clear is a really good thing to do. My third tip would be answer the questions that are asked. Don't try and fit information in if it's not relevant to that question. It's kind of like the reading comprehension that you used to do at school is, <laughs> is really try and understand what that question is that they're asking and mm -hmm. what it is they want to know and then answering that as clearly and comprehensively as you can. Quite often there are word limits. The Arts Council have quite small word limits. So you do have to be as concise as possible, but read the guidance notes that are available and and make sure that you're answering that question in, in that particular box. And then I guess my final general advice is to, it, it can seem quite daunting as a whole thing because there are lots of different elements to it. But if you break it down and you focus on one or two elements a day or a session that you've got to, to focus on, then it becomes a lot more manageable. So just break it down into chunks and set yourself a target of, right, I'm going to do this chunk today and then I'm going to have a break from it and then I might come back to it later today or I might come back to it tomorrow. Give yourself plenty of time and just break it down and then it becomes a much less daunting um, prospect.
Sure. Brilliant. I was wondering if you could talk us through kind of your journey to be working at the space. My school had wanted an Oxbridge candidate. It was a new school and they hadn't had anyone go to Oxford or Cambridge. And I was their sort of big hope in my year. So a lot of my my university applications had to be geared around English literature because that's what I applied for at Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up doing English and theatre arts at Goldsmiths. I didn't get into Cambridge. Oh, that's another story. And and really enjoyed it. I'd always been directing shows. I've been directing shows since I was 14, so 30 years now. I started directing. The, the last time Liverpool won the league was the same year that I started directing shows. So, yeah, when I got to university, I wanted to, to be creating work still whilst I was learning. So we had a theatre company that we set up whilst we were at Goldsmiths and we did we did some plays there. And then when I graduated, we continued that theatre company and we did three shows in our first year. And then we disbanded like many, many companies do and people went their different ways. So I was, I'd been working part-time at Ticketmaster mm-hmm. and I, whilst I was studying and I ended up being there, I, I moved into customer service, went from their call centre to customer services. And then I went from there into training. So I was training new call centre agents. And then finally, I became the the training and quality assurance manager um, for both the London and Manchester call centres. Um, and whilst I was doing that, I was approached by a couple of graduates from a few years below me who were doing a Midsummer Night's Dream. And we did that in a little church in Soho. And then we were looking to do more work together. And we came across the space as a venue. So we approached them with with some ideas and Ali Forbes who worked there at the time really liked one of them so we we did a show there I think for two or three nights and we packed it out so we got invited back to do more of the space so I was working for Ticketmaster and doing shows with all good theatre companies what we were called uh doing them at the space and we do them for sort of three or four nights at the space and then we take them on quite often to do longer runs at venues like the White Bear or the, what was called the Broccoli Jack. And then my job at Ticketmaster got moved to Manchester and I didn't want to follow it. So I, I took redundancy and spent the next year doing some writing, uh, directing some shows and working part time. Um, I worked at Disney Theatrical for a bit and I worked at Somerset House on their ice rink. And then I got contacted by Ali, who wanted to go part-time. She'd got another part-time role. So she wanted to job share the role at the space with someone that she knew, knew the venue and knew how to bring an audience in. And she'd liked the work that I'd done there before. So I applied for the job and interviewed and was successful. And although I had a lot of experience in, in directing and managing shows, and I had a lot of experience in box office through Ticketmaster and I'd done you know, a good bit of marketing. There were some things that I had never done before. I'd never really done any serious fundraising. I got a bit of a sponsorship from, from an opticians for a show that I did. But beyond that, I hadn't really done any, any big fundraising and I hadn't ever done any sort of maintenance before. I was always pretty useless at, at tech, but those were things that I had to kind of quickly learn because at that time there was only one member of staff so Ali and I were sharing the role initially and then when Ali moved on and I took it over full time it was just me and we didn't have very many volunteers so those early years was a really steep learning curve because I had to try and balance everything from from the maintenance of the venue making sure it was clean and tidy to programming events uh, marketing those events and then recruiting for those projects and managing those projects. 
I'm probably missing some other stuff. And it was always it was it was really difficult to know how to split my time between all of those different things because I, I might spend time programming loads of shows, but then if I hadn't done enough spent enough time marketing them, then we wouldn't have an audience for them. So yeah, so it was it was a really steep learning curve. I had a meeting with the board of trustees and we had four main aims when I started. And those were to set up a clear organizational structure who reported to who and obviously we have a board of trustees who I report to above me and then at that time it was just one or two volunteers who who reported to me we had to try and get on a more secure financial footing we never had very much money in the bank account we never went into any debt but it was all a little bit hand-to-mouth so looking at how we could increase our income in different ways the board asked for a, a coherent artistic vision so what we were going to program and how we were going to make that that happen and then also to engage engage more with the local community. So those were the kind of four aims that I had starting out. And I did a lot of fundraising. One of our trustees was a fundraiser, so we would have meetings on a Saturday morning and she would sort of teach me the, the basics of fundraising and what I needed to look out for and what I needed to do and where I should focus the time that I had. Mm-hmm. And working together, we managed to get a few grants in and then managed to recruit a second member of staff and that kind of helped ease that ease that burden, and I could focus more on on the programming of the venue and productions and the fundraising still. And Mari, who we recruited, could look more at the sort of marketing side and the, the general admin and and that sort of thing. So yeah, so that's how it all came to be. A lot of my a lot of what I've learnt has been learnt on the job, and that's been terrifying but exciting in equal measure. Yeah, and it was it was an interesting way of 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 moving into managing a venue and and being an artistic director that's that's kind of been the journey for me I guess I hope you're enjoying this as much as I did I can't believe Adam was able to give us that much time given how he's always got so many things going on I'm just popping up to talk to you about the state of our industry at the best of times there's rarely enough money to go around in the performing arts and as I'm recording this during COVID-19, the industry has been closed down and we don't know what will happen when we come back and return to normal, whatever this new normal may mean. Already we're seeing historic theatres and arts venues closing down. So I'm just asking, if you have any spare money please look up your local theatre, arts venue and give them something, anything you can. At the beginning of lockdown, lots of people, I know I certainly did, binge Netflix, Amazon Prime, watch theatre, ballet and opera online as well. All these great forms of escapism that were available to us to help us get through the trauma of lockdown and quarantine and what was going on outside our front doors. So please return that favour if you can. I'm aware that across the board, people have been affected by the pandemic and we've all got less money than we normally do. So if things are too tight, then obviously don't worry. Just focus on looking after yourself in these difficult times. I think it would be remiss of me not to, to bring it up support the industry that supported you and with that let's get back to adam it is such an all-encompassing job that you do and i'm often flabbergasted at how you manage to get as much done in the day as you do what 
would you recommend people do if they want to be either an artistic director or venue director? Yeah, I think the um, I think the sort of venue management route is probably a little bit more straightforward than the artistic director route. There are courses you can take in venue management and there are different things that you can do. I think sort of volunteering at a venue is a really great way to learn and understand the different parts and different elements of what, of what goes into running it and, and finding out which bits that you enjoy and which bits that you don't enjoy. Certainly one of the great things about my role is that I do get to do a lot of different things. I get to be a fundraiser and I get to be, I get to do some marketing and I get to be a, a programmer and I get to be a director. And if you volunteer for a small organisation, not only are you helping them to get the work done that they need to do, but you're getting insight and experience on a really sort of high level uh, of a number of different areas. So quite a few of the staff that we've recruited over the years began as volunteers at the space. And so when we when we did have an opening, the advantage they had because they knew the venue and they knew the work and, and what was involved was really great. You know, it's not always easy to afford the time to be able to volunteer, but quite often venues and certainly the space, quite often they will be flexible about what your level of commitment is. If you can only spare one day a week or one afternoon or one evening or one morning a week, then quite often that's still really valuable to venues. So I think volunteering is a great way to kind of learn about what's involved and and also just to connect you with a venue if there's a venue that you really like and that you would like to work with just spend as much time as possible there go and see the shows that are on get your get involved and get your face seen and become part of that the fabric of that that venue but in terms of being an artistic director i think i think you largely you do kind of have to have a some experience of directing certainly if you're going to be involved in in in-house productions so to have track record of creating work and or presenting work i think you can be sort of producing work or you might create a festival for example and be curating work i think those those are all things that kind of feed into being an artistic director i mean i was very lucky and it was kind of the right place and the right time when it Mm -hmm. when it came to me you know i worked at the space as a director and I got on with the existing artistic director and I was lucky that she was looking to job share and, and, and wanted to work with somebody that she knew and, and got on well with. So yeah, so my route into it was a little bit fortunate, but I worked really hard on, on making those shows at the space a big success and mm-hmm. making sure that we had an audience in and that they were good quality shows and that, that they were engaging and entertaining and people enjoyed them. I think it's finding a venue that kind of resonates with you Inviting the venue to kind of see your work is always a good thing to do, making sure that you've got sort of a list of contacts. And yeah, and again, quite often I will meet with new directors or emerging directors just to talk to them about what they're doing and where they want to go and how they want to develop as as a director. I really enjoy spending time with, with new and emerging directors and just talking to them about the challenges that they're facing and, and different ways that they can do things and they can try and develop. It is a tough industry at times, but it's a very rewarding one when you get to do this, the work that you that you really want to do. I think I'd always, when I was doing shows and I was working, certainly when I would got made redundant from Ticketmaster, my thoughts were always about, I want to run a venue. I was looking at abandoned buildings and thinking, how can I open this up as a theatre? <laughs> I want to have a place where I can stage the work that I want. Mm-hmm. happening 
so it was um it was really really great and it you know i've been in i've been at space 15 years and I'll, I'll never have the same level of flexibility and freedom in, in the work that I do, but mm. just to have a space where I, I can program the work that I want, that I'd like to see and help develop work and, and create work yeah. um, is really re rewarding. I, I think for an artistic director, you, you, need to be, you need to be creating work somehow. And that's the first step. And then inviting people to see that work and then getting involved in a venue. If, a venue, if venue work is what you want to do, um, and it's not for everyone, I think, um, sometimes people feel like they will get sort of stuck at a venue and prefer the variety that being freelance offers and kind of working in lots of different spaces and i can absolutely see the attraction in that as well for me it was about having a little bit of security and, and knowledge that there was sort of a long-term job there for me but also about building something and building something within a community and and really trying to take the space on from where I found it to somewhere new and, and different and exciting. We've continuously tried to do that and I've, I've never felt that we've finished the job. There's always somewhere new and exciting and different that we can go. And mm. doing this stuff online has, has, has kind of proven that we can reach uh, a whole load of different people. We have people taking part in our workshops from Argentina and South Africa we had audience members for a script space reading from Singapore. Um, and we've had um, some incredible special guests for our theatre club. You know, I mentioned Patsy earlier, but, but really top level directors and playwrights and actors who maybe, you know, if we weren't in this crazy pandemic time, maybe they wouldn't have had the time or the inclination to kind of come and spend their time with us. But I probably wouldn't have asked them either. Um, and maybe actually it's a case of being a bit bolder and braver and asking people um, because I think people do want to help and, and support others wherever they the can. The worst is that someone can say no, right? Yeah, absolutely. And rejection is a part of working in the arts. Yeah. It's a really important part of working in the arts. Learning how to accept rejection and, and deal with it and move on is, you know, it's, it's really important. You're not always going to be right for every role the opportunity might not come at the right per right time for the person you're asking. Um, when you're applying for funding, you know, you don't know who you're who you're up against and who you're competing with. And there's a there's a finite pot of money. There's a finite number of roles in a show. And so yeah, learning to deal with rejection is, is a really important part of working in the arts. Any area I think of working in the arts. I always remember someone said to me, My aim isn't how many jobs the target that I set isn't how many jobs that I land. It's the number that I get rejected from. Because if I'm rejected from 100 jobs, that means I've applied for, you know, hopefully more than 100 jobs. But um, if, I'm, if I'm not applying for jobs, then that's when, that's when the sort of, you know, the, the problems start. I think that's a really positive way to look at, uh, look at being rejected for, for roles. Not yeah, selected I, for roles. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember early on someone at drama school saying to me, for every 10 roles you apply, you'll get seen for one and you know for every 10 roles you'll be seen for you'll actually land one of them probably and those are kind of the margins that you're looking for specific obviously as an actor but i think there is an as you were saying there's an element of that scale uh, within reason to other parts of the industry yeah absolutely i often found that if if i'd applied for a grant and you, you know we spend a long time working on a grant application sometimes months and months working on a, on a grant application. So there's a lot of work and energy that goes into it. You know, the rewards are 
fantastic if you're successful but it can be quite heartbreaking if you don't you know if you don't get it to, to feel that all that work has been wasted but I would use that to motivate me if I got a, a rejection for a grant that would be the day that I would start planning a new project um, mm. or start working on another grant application I usually have some some going on all the time but it would give me that motivation to sort of attack it with renewed vigor and, mm. and really almost as a springboard kind of use using that disappointment to fuel your your motivation to to go again yeah which is no mean feat but it is a really useful way of kind of protecting your mental health in the industry as well is to remember that there's a whole host of reasons why you didn't get picked which is why i was asking about the casting before about sometimes you said you know you you ideally want to give it to the right person but there are other factors in play that are beyond the control of the actor and I guess that that also then is the case with the rest of the industry and trying to protect yourself I think that's one of the big problems within our industry is mental health and it's really difficult to kind of be on top of that even even if you're not in a job that involves constant rejection you need to find coping mechanisms to help you take that energy and turn it into something positive as you were saying I think it is absolutely it's really it's really hard there definitely are days when I feel like everything's getting on top of me and I don't see how we're gonna how I'm gonna get through the list of jobs that I have yeah so it's I, I think sometimes it is important to just take a step back and to take a break and, and have a breath for a minute and then other times I will just try and think back or remember or reread um something positive whether that's an email that i've received from a you know a grateful theater company or a good review that i've had or something like that just a, a little reminder and then the other the other thing that i do is is talk to people is just have a chat with people and tell them how i'm feeling you know i'm oh i'm really struggling with this and quite often they'll say oh how can i help what can i do and i'll realize after the end of the conversation that i just need to sort of knuckle down and get on with it and mm-hmm. and i can only do as much as i can do and and you know if, if it doesn't get done, that means it, there wasn't the time to do it. It wasn't anything to do with whether I was good at doing it or not. Sure. But I think, you know, I think communication is key and, and having people that you can talk to and share your frustrations and, you know, an ear to bend. I think that's really important. Keeping it all sort of bottled up and, and just worrying and worrying about it on your own is not advisable. Certainly. Some questions from Twitter and Instagram. So the first question is from Mark Finnecombe. He asks, what are the processes from getting a script from paper to stage? And how much say does a playwright usually get in casting? So there's no one process, I think, for getting a a script from page to stage, but I'll kind of talk through how it often happens for us. We have a scripts-based development program, so playwrights send in early draft scripts and we read every script that's been sent in. Uh, We have a reading panel who help with this. And then every playwright gets written feedback on their scripts. And then we will select some of those for rehearsed readings. So we'll do play readings of them. So we bring in some professional actors and we'll get the plays on their feet and we'll bring an audience in and the playwright gets to hear the play read aloud and then, then we have a, a feedback session so they get feedback suggestions and ideas from the actors and from the audience and I think that's a really useful thing to do if you've written a play is to try and find some people who can who can read it for you so you can hear it read aloud quite often 
just hearing a piece of, of theatre read will help you to understand where its strengths and weaknesses are and help you to go back in and, and do that next draft. We have then done a, a few other things. We, we've had plays that come through Scriptspace and we've done research and development projects with them. So we've taken, we had a play called The Lighthouse, which was set on a five-story lighthouse. It had a reindeer and a sleigh and it, it was about St. Nicholas crash landing on an iceberg. And that was really beautifully written, but there were all these huge technical challenges to it. So we did a project where we brought in some designers and we and, and some actors and a director and we explored the play and, and looked at it uh, from a dramaturgical perspective and from a technical perspective and kind of explored it that way. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that project, realised that, that we had to produce it. There was nothing else that we could do. It had to be done. So we then applied for the funding and did that project. We've done a few other bits and pieces where we've worked those plays into a into a festival we've just produced the plays from there with with our regular programming we are we only work with theatre companies so if you're a playwright you need to find a company or a director that is interested in doing your work so it may just be a case of finding directors that you like you like the work of if you're going to watch a lot of theatre making a note of who the director is if you've enjoyed it Mm-hmm. Um, is it you know do they enjoy working on similar work to yours so quite often you can find a director who's interested in your work finding producers a little bit harder but if you can find a producer um, similarly that can be really useful you can send your script to certain venues you have to kind of do your research on which venues like receiving applications and scripts but some venues like theatre 503 I know the Jack studio also take uh, new writing sending your script to venues is, is a good thing to do. And how much say does a playwright get in casting? Well, the biggest say that you have is in your character breakdown that you include in your script. Mm-hmm. So the more specific you can be in that character breakdown, the better chance you'll have of getting someone who fits your vision for that particular role. And then it just varies. It really varies depending on the agreement that you have with the director or the company or the venue. Some directors would prefer the playwright to stay as far away as possible from the casting and rehearsal process. Um, as a director, I'm much more, much happier to include the playwright in that process. Um, I'm directing a couple of plays for a Geologue festival that we're doing online, and I'm going to be working very closely with the playwrights on casting those. Ultimately, I think the decision should come down to the director. So if it comes to a disagreement between a playwright and a director, with regards to casting, I always think the director should have the final, final choice. Ultimately, casting is the role of a director. Yeah. They're the ones who have the experience of it. They should have the final say. Mm. Although playwrights have the opportunities, you said, to to set out the initial parameters of what the character should be. Yeah, absolutely. And quite often that's just in the text itself. You know, a good character breakdown with your script can really, really help to sort of give people an idea of what that character should be like sure so uh, the next question is from rachel dennett who says what would you say are the most effective rehearsal techniques you use with cast members yeah it's a tricky one it really depends on the play and the actor to a certain extent i don't know that i have one one way in quite often we will start with with the script and we'll start with a with with reading the play and just making sure that there's a kind of an understanding of of what the text means what the, what the intentions are behind those lines 
and then I like to get up on its feet as, as early as I can. I'm, I'm not a director that does the days and days and days of table work, but we will talk about it first before we get it on its feet. Quite often I like to play without the boundaries of the stage that we're using. So we might say you can go wherever you like in the space that we're rehearsing in and, and use it in whatever way you feel. Often it's about a connection between the actors. So it's about finding different exercises and ways of of them connecting to each other. And yeah, and quite often I will play with, we had a, a rehearsal for the castle once where I had two actors in the room. There were so many different levels and layers to what these characters were feeling at that time. And I wanted them to really push hard on, on each of those individually. So we we would run the scene and each character, each actor had a, a focus that I wanted them to push much, much harder. So I wanted one, you know, I might say to them, I really, you're angry about this during, you know, this is one of the elements of, of what was going on in your head is you're angry about this. And I want you to just focus on that anger for the whole of this run. Forget about everything else, just about the anger. And then we might sort of look at a different, a different um, element and, and work on that and just try and build what felt most natural and what felt right for each of the individual moments within, within the scene. But really it's about finding whatever you can do to find the honesty within each moment in each scene for that character at that time. That's that's the kind of key. But there's, there's all sorts of different exercises and techniques and games that we, we will play in rehearsals, but it will always vary depending on what the scene is. So it's not a very useful answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> but if I'm rehearsing something and you want to come and watch, you're more than welcome. Brilliant. I think there was a lot of useful information in there, but that's also good to know. They're welcome down at the space. The final question is from Howard Otley, who says, what sort of things do you look for from prospective theatre companies and playwrights? Um, what sort of things should we include if we want to put a play on at, say, the space? Yeah, so we, um, we programme a mixture of new writing, revivals and classics, and we try and find a balance with that within each season. But ultimately, the things we're really looking for, things that are predominantly theatrical in nature. We are less interested in, in live art, for example. We look for stuff that has a strong narrative. We are kind of a narrative-led uh, venue. A really good story, ultimately, is, is kind of what we, what we want. We look for stuff that's engaging and accessible, that we, we know what it is. Quite often, we receive proposals where the idea is quite abstract, and the way it's just described means that we, we just have no clue in our heads what, what that piece of theatre is. So being sort of clear and, and in, in kind of what the, what the show is about and what it is. We look for stuff that's socially relevant and socially engaging. Um, so there kind of has to be a reason for, for doing it. Why, why you're doing it is just as important as what you're doing. And we look for stuff that's got a, something a little bit different to it. We're kind of less interested in a traditional Midsummer Night's Dream or Romeo and Juliet and that we've those have been done sort of quite often before mm -hmm. so if you're looking to do a classic kind of what is your spin or your take on it something a little bit different always stands out for us in terms of what you need to include we have proposal form on our website and a, an information pack which kind of gives you loads of information about how we work as a venue but we ask you to talk about the show and what it is about the company and who you are and your experience. Quite often we, we, we do, one of our aims as a registered charity is to work with new artists. So a lack of sort of experience or track record isn't a barrier for us. But if 
we want to know then what your ethos is as a company, what you what you stand for, and what you're in, interested in making in the future beyond this particular show. Mm-hmm. One of the key things that often gets ignored on our forms is who is the target audience for your show, and how are you going to reach them? Again, it's a really nice sentiment, and and people often write that their show is for everybody when it's unfortunately just not not true. It's not the case. Your show can't be for everybody. It can't. It can't be for two-year-olds and twenty-year-olds at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, who is your who is your show aimed at? Who are the people you want to see this show? What's yeah. your target audience? Um, thinking really carefully about who those are. Is it people who enjoy comedy? Is it regular theatre goers? Is it people who've never been to a show before but really love music? You know, is it fans of Shakespeare or is it fans of political theatre? Who are the people that are, are are really going to engage with this. And there may be a target audience that you have that doesn't regularly go to the theatre. We did a show called Bluebird and we wanted, we really wanted to get, it was about a taxi driver. Like, wouldn't it be great if we got some taxi drivers to come and see the show? They may not go and see the theatre very often. We just really wanted to try and, and do that. So we 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 wrote to a lot of um, our taxi driver magazines. There are magazines that are for specifically for taxi drivers. And we wrote to them and and had stuff advertised in there, and we we did get a couple coming along to see the show, which was great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so thinking, thinking sort of outside of the box about who your audience might be and who you want to attract, and then kind of thinking then about how you're how you're going to reach them. And the other thing we we tend to ask more in interview rather than on the form is how we as a venue can support you. What do you need most as a as a company that we might be able to help you with and 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 support you with we want to be able to work with the companies that come to the space we, we want companies to be open and honest with us and communicate if they're having any issues or problems because quite often we can help help so solve those or come up with solutions for for how to overcome those those problems so yeah so that's that's what people need to include in in their kind of proposals to us we try and make the form as simple as possible the other thing that we're happy to do is have a conversation in advance of people applying if they want to talk about the show and talk about the application then then we're happy to do that as well brilliant and then the final thing is how can people get in contact with you the space our website is www.space.org.uk you can sign up to our mailing list from there and we have all sorts of information about our programming and and what's on and bits and pieces up on the website we are on social media so on Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash the space. And we go live every Monday at five o'clock. Um, we have live at five, which is our weekly Facebook broadcast, where for 30 minutes, we'll talk about what's coming up at the space, um, what we've been up to. Um, quite often, we'll have special guests on to talk about what they're doing. Uh, so that's always good fun. And then on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Space Art Centre, all one word, at Space Art Centre. What would you say in general to people who currently aren't in the arts industry but are thinking about joining? Sorry, who aren't professionals in the arts That's industry? That's great, yeah, so who aren't. So whether they be sixth formers about to go to university, people leaving university, or people even who currently have another career but, but actually what they've always wanted to do is to do something more creative. Yeah, I, I think it's it's tremendously rewarding. It's really it's a really really rewarding industry, and got to yes, you have to be thick skinned, and yes, you you know um, you have to really persevere. But it's so you benefit so many people by creating 
art in any form, whether that's um, music or theatre or visual arts, what you are giving out really is meaningful to other people. Um, and that's that's just a hugely rewarding thing. So, yeah, that's I, I think it's is is I, I mean, any job is hard work to do it well. You've got to find the right people in theatre specifically. You've got to find the right people that you want to work with. And you've got to enjoy it. I think if you if you really really enjoy doing it, then that's that's half the battle won. It can you know sometimes be hard to make money doing it, and the sort of people who are really earning lots of money are at the thin end of the wedge. So if you're in it for the money, um, it's probably not the right move. Um, mm-hmm. But it is really possible if you work hard, and you are yeah, you're just nice to be. If you're nice to people and you're good to work with, people will want to work with you. And you'll find yourself, you know, really busy. But you've got to, yeah, you've got to stick at it, I think. And um, the rewards are just huge. Brilliant. So should people want to donate money to, is it the St Paul's Arts Trust, which is part of the the space? How, how can they help, especially in these difficult times, should people have a spare pound or two? So we are a registered charity. Uh, we are managed by St Paul's Arts Trust and our aims are, mentioned before our aims are to support new artists and to provide creative opportunities for people who live locally to the area although increasingly that's becoming a much more global thing we have a support us page on the website so space.org.uk forward slash support hyphen us and on there you can become a friend of the space um, and you get all tickets to shows reduced and we will restart your membership from the date we reopen as a venue after COVID-19. You can also make a monthly donation if you wanted to go there. You can make a, you can donate one or two pounds a month. Little small amounts like that really add up over time. Giving a little bit regularly um, is a great way of supporting any venue. There's also the support of sharing what we're doing is just as valuable in a way. So if you are active on social media, then, you know, following us on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and just retweeting or sharing the work, sharing our, our and getting the word out there is, is, is another really good way of supporting what we do, being an advocate for the space and its work. If you enjoy the work that we do, and then, you know, telling other people about it is just as valuable as, as making a donation. Having said that, our future is uncertain. We don't know when we'll be able to reopen and our, our um, reserves are finite. Um, so any, any amount, small or large, um, really does make a big difference at the moment. And above and beyond that kind of tells us that we're what we're doing is is valued and and that's that's priceless right now absolutely i think going back to something you just said there a lot of people don't realize how much of a difference it makes people retweeting um, and sharing or just tweeting about a play particularly when it's on the fringe having people who aren't involved in the production who just come along and see it and say oh i just saw this play at the space it's amazing you have to go and see it makes such a big difference to that show and in turn getting the word out about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the same for everything, really, whether it's a piece of theatre or a podcast or, you know, if you've enjoyed something, then um, liking it and sharing it um, and giving or giving, you know, positive feedback on it is a really great way of, of supporting that that uh, venture. I encourage people to take the time to do that wherever they can. Especially for this podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, follow, subscribe, click oh. the buttons. Do the buttons thing for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's everything. Thank you so much for giving us your time, Adam. I know it went on a bit longer than planned and I added a couple of cheeky extra questions in, but 
It was fantastic. Remember to visit the Spaces website, which is www.space.org.uk. Um, but thanks very much for having me, Damien. I've really enjoyed it. It's always great chatting to you. I'm looking forward to future episodes. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. That's it for the first episode of Podcast and Crew. Adam was such a great guest to have. It was so interesting to get so much information about so many elements of running a venue, both artistically and administratively. So if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to like and subscribe. Of course, right? Always like and subscribe. Please also share this podcast with other people who you think would enjoy Podcast and Crew. We've got loads of great guests coming up and I'm really keen to add your questions into the mix. So make sure you follow us on the socials, Twitter and Instagram on at Real Cast and Crew, all written out. I'll say that again, at Real Cast and Crew on Insta and Twitter. I'll be posting about our guests long in advance, so there should be time enough to make sure you get your questions in. I really want to have you guys be part of this podcast as well. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did and see you next time. And I think you'll probably be sick of talking to me by that point. (laughs) 